following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, please visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to 8 o'clock church. (laughs) I know we have brilliant people in our government, but the worst thing they ever did in their life was to give us daylight savings time. I could continually fall back. I hate this springing forward. I read about a man, I was studying a little bit about it this week. I read about a man in England. Back in 1922, England decided to set their clocks up 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And there was one old man that said, I will not set my clock forward 20 minutes. So everything he went to, he is 20 minutes late at. And he said, when I die, I'm going to die 20 minutes late. Because I'm not going to set my clock to your time. He had a friend in Kansas. He had a friend in Kansas that uh, hated, hated this government time. He hated it. He said, I will not defy the time of God for the time of the government. <laughs> I love that. He said, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Ben Franklin, you, you create electricity, but this was the dumbest thing you ever did. Thank you, Mr. Franklin, for giving us daylight saving time. But folks, I'm going to tell you, y'all showed up today. We used to have an 8 o'clock service, so I kind of feel, feel comfortable here. Uh, I don't know how good my brain's working today. I really don't. I did all my exercises. <laughs> did all of that, but it doesn't do this. It doesn't do this. It doesn't unlock this. But thank you for being here. It's an honor. Would you stand up? The other night at the concert, I thought it was cute. I think we're going to do this today. The, uh, this group, Ren Collective, they had a great lead singer. And he had everybody jumping on one foot like this. Y'all want to do that this morning? All right, we won't do it. Then he had them jumping on the left foot. You want to do that this morning? Or right, won't you just clap your hands and get warmed up a little bit? Come on, just clap your hands. Just clap your hands. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Real big. Got to get warmed up a little bit. It's earlier than it's ever been. I've heard preachers say it's later than it's ever been, but it's earlier than it's ever been right now. But what a joy to see you. And if you're a first-time guest here, you would make a great member of this church. If this Sunday is your first Sunday to ever come to Christian Life Church, you'd make a great member because you don't mind getting up early and being a part of the 9 o'clock service. Thank you for being here. It's an honor of ours to welcome you. And it's an honor of ours to open our hearts to you today. And if we can do anything to make your stay or your day better, we'll be glad to help you and serve you. We have a wonderful wait staff here, a wonderful group of leaders and people that love to wait on people because we love people. We are servants in this house. And I want to thank, I want to concur with Brad, the beautiful volunteers that we had last Friday night was just off the chain There wasn't a frown in the house. Everybody was smiling. Everybody was happy. They were happy servants. And, uh, you know, the Queen of Sheba asked Solomon, said, how come all you people are happy? Well, we're happy because we love to come to the house of the Lord. And we dwell in the house of the Lord. And there's something joyous about church when we come to the house of God. And Solomon said, that's just the way it is here. We have happy servants that love to serve the Lord. And I want to thank you from my heart because, you know what, I didn't, I didn't come around. I kind of I kinda let you all have it Friday. Not let you have it, I let you take it from me, all right? But thank you to our staff 
and to all the volunteers and the joy that you showed on that Friday night was just excellent. And it has to open up hearts to people to realize that we have something beautiful here at 4700 Westgate Boulevard and we're excited. We're four weeks away today, folks, from Easter Sunday. It's on April Fool's Day this year. And uh, I will not be preaching about April Fool's on Easter because we have a God that is not trying to fool anybody. He's trying to save everybody. And we're excited about that. But the next two Sundays, the next two Sundays, we're going to talk about perhaps some resurrection concepts. We're going to get into that. And then Pastor Scott will be here on Palm Sunday, which will be the 25th. And then, of course, we'll be speaking on Easter Sunday. We're expecting a big day, a big week, a big month, and God's going to help us. Turn to somebody, say, I'm going to help the pastor today. And you remain standing. I, uh, I want to welcome back to church today a sweet lady, an in-law. Uh, Judy McNicholas is back in church. We buried her precious husband, Tommy, and uh, had his funeral about a month ago. And it's so exciting to see Judy today and see a smile on her face. Would you give Judy McNicholas a great hand of love and appreciation? Amen. And if you get a chance after church, go by and just give her a big hug and tell her that we love her because we all do. And we're also very happy to have Bill and Doris Patrick back in church. These folks, these folks are older folks. They're not old, they're older. And Brother Bill has never learned what it was to take it easy and quit working. So he's had two bad falls in the last month. And Sister Doris had surgery and they have always been so faithful. And they walked in this morning and I think that's worth a hand clap. Brother Bill and Sister Doris are in the house today. Amen. I just feel like honoring people today. What a joy to have them. He's been a part of our board directors for a long time. I got this letter that I want to share with you. I'm not going to read it all. But it said, uh, CLC Austin, Texas. Dear Christian friends, I wish I were doing this in person. Then she wrote, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Right? I'm in closing. She sent an offering to the church and said, as we all know that the postal service is guilty of being imperfect. She said, I need a receipt for all I'm doing. I want you, Pastor Johnson, and all of your wonderful staff to know that I love and miss the spiritual services and fellowship during the past five plus years. I'm doing very well and will celebrate my 95th birthday in July. I'm one grateful, this made me cry, lamb who wishes she could be back in your fold. I love and miss every one of you. Pat Watson, Sister Pat Watson, you sit right over here. Wow, a wonderful, beautiful lady, a beautiful spirit. I just thought I'd read that today. She lives down in South Texas, and uh, I'm going to call her tomorrow, and we're going to have a long chat because she's very, very competent. I love you. You may be seated. God bless. My subject today is simply out of sight out of mind, out of sight, out of mind. I'm going to be manuscript today some because I didn't know how well my brain would work today. That the 23rd chapter of the Bible's first book, Genesis 23, even exists. It's a paradox. Open it up when you get home. A 127-year-old lady has died. Her 137-year-old husband is arranging for a proper burial. And from the eye of anthropology, it's nothing more than a business transa- a transaction worthy of perhaps just a single verse. However, 
The deceased is Sarah. The mourning man is Abraham, father Abraham, who is eager to find a burying place for his bride. And there's more here than meets the eye. To consider it more carefully and in various translations is to find no fewer than five times the phrase that I may bury my dead out of my sight. A sojourner in Canaan, Abraham doesn't have a grave in which to lay his beloved Sarah. So he negotiates with the children of Heth who defer to him saying, you're a mighty prince among us, sir. And in the choice of our sepulchers, bury your dead. None of us shall withhold from you his sepulcher. We'll all pitch in. But despite their generous offers, despite it, Abraham persists and he says, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, entreat me for me, Ephron of Zophar, that he may give me a cave, the cave of Machpelah at the end of the field. Let's put in this picture in a clearer perspective. Ishmael, Abram's son by the bondwoman Hagar, is now 50 years old. Isaac, the son of the promise by Sarah, is about 37. And Abraham is trying to bandage the ravages of death, trying to bury his dead out of his sight. Ephraim offers Machpelah. For nothing, in fact, but Abraham refuses. He said, I don't want it free. And at the price of 400 shekels of silver, it's set, the deal is done. And the patriarch Abraham has found a resting place for the remains of Sarah. Imagine, they've been married some 60 to 100 years, about 2,200 years before Jesus Christ, and they loved no less than you or I. And their parting was not a small matter. Imagine how many miles they had traveled together, not in airplanes, not in cars, but on camels. What multitude and myriad of experiences they had shared during those 60 to 100 years. It was, for Abraham, the separation from his lifelong wife and friend. A reluctant parting from the one with whom he indeed was one. But it was even more than that. When he buried Sarah, Abraham buried a part of his past of which he wasn't proud. He buried the embarrassment of some past failures. And some past mistakes. Not unlike any of us, there was a single fragile thread woven into the fabric of Abraham's life. In the distant past, desperate to desire his desire to survive, he had not once but twice forced Sarah to lie on his behalf. To say she was his sister and not his wife. First in Egypt before Pharaoh and finally before Abimelech. And they represented two terrifying episodes in his life. Now indescribable disappointments divided by 30 years of time in his life. It was at that time in Abraham's frightened mind a necessary compromise had been made. Before his legendary faith had come full circle, he did stagger. But every time he looked into Sarah's face, deep into her eyes, he saw a dreadful deed that he had done. And had forced her to do also. And he wasn't proud of the part of his past. Justifiably so. It didn't matter that she never mentioned it. Her eyes said enough. He could see her soul through them. And so he wanted. Desperately wanted. To put it out of sight. 
And that was his chance to bury her at Machpelah. With every glance at her beautiful face, he saw the terror she had felt. And when the angels had visited them in the plains of memory, again and again he relieved his hour of doubt when his faith had failed. And he went to Hagar, the bondwoman, and from that illicit union brought Ishmael into the world. Did Sarah ever mock him? I doubt it. There's no record she did. But it was there just the same, a major mistake, a frightening failure, and she knew it. She always knew it. It was there, staring him in the face of Sarah. So no matter how much he loved her, fact is, when Abraham buried his beloved Sarah, he buried the embarrassment of his past too. He buried it. He put it out of his sight. He is the father of the faithful to be sure. But he's also the father of the faithful today. He's our father of the faithful. And we also know the sting of failure that he has known in his life. The faithful that are here today who have tasted the sweet nectar of success but have swallowed the bitter pill of failure as well. We sit here in this house this morning, the faithful who have experienced defeat, who have dreams that have died, who've had desires that went unrealized, who've had sicknesses that went uncured, whose souls that remain unsaved and failure among family and friends. We've all felt it. And like Abraham, those faithful, you and I, we, us, us, finally resigned ourselves to it and accepted the unpleasant verdict. So we buried it somewhere in our past out of sight and we resolved to move on. But I am convinced in my spirit today that God has a message for us even now. At the beginning of what I call resurrection season, four Sundays out, It may be disguised in the mundane details of some some unfortunate incident or reversal or failure or defeat in our lives. Maybe there was a larger issue unfolded. Maybe something bigger was going on that wasn't apparent to us then. And maybe, just maybe, the same Lord who was silent then is ready to speak now. Maybe the Savior who seemed absent then is present now. Present and ready to remember what we had chosen to forget. Ready to resurrect what we had chosen to bury. Ready to return to what we already walked away from. Ready to resume a relationship with that thing which we felt was finished in our life. I'm standing here today telling someone that God Almighty is present right now. He's here. He's here. I don't know what's happened in your, in your past, but I understand that there's some things that you have wanted to bury out of your sight. But God Almighty is here today to open up what some of us have closed in our mind and to tell you in this resurrection season, you're going to come out of that situation and live like you've never lived in your whole life. Can you clap your hands for that? That's the word of the Lord for you today. Bound in the narrative of John chapter 11, there's a lifetime of lessons. And many of them are familiar to us all. Some of them are obvious and some are more subtle. But threaded through the simple lines of Lazarus' death, Martha's anger and accusation and Mary's angst, there's a larger, more transcendent truth. Hidden 
in the easily recognizable characters of this sad story, there's a compelling truth of the kingdom. Lazarus takes ill in Bethany. You know the story. Jesus receives the word of his sickness, but, but, he tarries two more days. Then finally he informs his disciples that Lazarus is dead. And it's then that he moves toward Bethany. And as he approaches that sleepy little town, Martha rushes to meet him, accusing him with every breath. If you had been here, she said, my brother would not have died. And Mary tarries back at the house, but Martha's angry at him, but Mary's overwhelmed. Jesus counters Martha's claim with promise of resurrection. He said, and I quote, your brother shall rise again. I know he shall rise, she said, in the resurrection of the last day. But he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die. Then he asked, do you believe that? She said, I believe you're the Christ that should come into the world. Can I tell you, for the first time in all my study, I finally found that she never said, I believe in the resurrection that you're able to give. She said, I believe you're the Christ that should come into the world. And she goes and gets Mary, who finally approaches Jesus, falling at his feet. And plaintively, she pleads her cause. If you had been here, she said. But it was a different spirit. And by his response to her, he said, Mary, Mary, it's totally different. He's moved. He groans. He weeps with her. John eleven thirty five. 35. And then there begins this notable sequence of events. You've got to stay with me now. When Jesus asked quite matter-of-factly, where have you laid him? Where is he? He could have gone on to say, your sister don't even know if I can resurrect or not. But where have you laid him? The question opened an entirely new chapter and took the discussion through a different door in a different arena, introduced a totally new prospect of living. Neither Martha nor Mary had indicated any interest in leading the Lord to the place as he called it. For them, stay with me now, it was over. They had put him away. They'd put him out of sight. They had wrapped him. They had buried him. They had sealed the tomb. They had resigned themselves to the void, resigned themselves to move on. Lazarus represented what they wanted to forget. He represented disappointment and defeat and failure and frustration, and he was that unanswered prayer. And there was a certain sense of betrayal they felt about it all. He was a sickness that went uncured. He was a life that was not saved. He was a need that wasn't met, and they had buried it with him. They had put a stone across the mouth of that grave cave. They had indeed, and in fact, Put it behind them, out of sight, and thus out of mind. And throughout their conversation with Jesus, neither of them had even hinted at a desire to go back there. Back to the place where they had buried their brother. Back to the place where they had buried the sorry chapter of their lives. But it's Jesus that's pressing the issue. Where is the place? Where you have laid him. Can I talk to this audience today? And can I tell you, I don't know if it's just something got a hold of me or something got a hold of me in this word. But I want to ask you, where have you laid those unfulfilled promises? 
Where have you buried that unanswered prayer? Where have you put that thing that you thought was out of sight and out of mind? I'm here to declare that this year, there's a Savior stepping on the scene and saying, I am here, and I am the resurrection, and I am the life, and he that believeth in me shall never die. Woo, I feel like preaching right now. Where have you put your defeat, disappointment, failure, frustration? He wants to know where you've put it, Martha. Where'd you put it, Mary? He wants to know where is it. Because faith is unafraid to face the problem. And Jesus brought faith to Bethany. So they start with tentative steps. They lead him to the garden within sight of the grave. And they pause there holding back, pointing to the place where they reluctantly laid their brother Lazarus. And Jesus commands that someone roll away the stone from the mouth of the cave and uncover it and expose it and put it out in the open again. And then with a voice that sounded something like thunder, he calls Lazarus from the dungeons of death. And he speaks to a situation they were certain would never hear his voice again. He reaches for something that they were sure was beyond anyone's grasp. He communes with someone they had committed to the past. They were finished, but he wasn't. They had given up, but he hadn't. So my thought today is never say it's over till God says it's over. Come on, clap your hands. Come on, give God a big praise. I want to say it big. Never say it's over till God says it's over. Never, never, never. And once they rolled away the stone, once they had uncovered what they had buried, he did what only he could do. And as Lazarus waddled out of that cave bound bodily in grave clothes, he commanded them to loose him and let him go. And subsequent to that miracle, that deliverance, that resurrection, much of the Jews, much people of the Jews came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see, see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. Let me just stop and say, there's not a person in the sound of my voice that he won't step up to the grave in your life for. There's not a person in the sound of my voice. He is no respecter of persons. He'll do it for you. He'll do it for me. He'll do it for anybody. And in this Easter season, and next Sunday, I'm going to go to step two on this. But next, next Sunday, next Sunday, I'm going to talk about this thing called resurrection. Oh, I'm going to preach the cross. Yeah, but I'm going to preach resurrection. Because some of you need some things that you have walked away from. That you have buried out of sight, out of mind. That God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to answer that unanswered prayer. I'm going to give you the confidence that you need in this life to go forward. Because I'm going to step up to your need this, this Easter. And I'm going to be the God that you need me to be. Because I am no respecter of person. I love what Ecclesiastes says. He said, the thing that hath been, is it, it is that which shall be. And that which is done, is that which shall be done. 
and there's no new thing under the sun. What he has done anywhere, what he has done for anyone, what he has done at any time, he'll do it for us right here and right now. If we'll take him to the place where we laid it, where we buried it out of our sight, that broken dream, that bitter disappointment, that unanswered prayer, that unmet expectation, that failure of family or friend, he has the will and the power to do what you and I never dreamed possible. Would you clap your hands and say, that's the kind of God I'm serving. So next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday, we need to walk in here saying, Lord, I've got a place I want you to go in my life. There's some things that I've buried in my past that I want you to resurrect because I thought it would never come to pass in my life. And I've walked away from it out of sight and out of mind. Say amen to that. So we close the book prematurely. We raise the white flag too quickly. We, we surrender too soon. We quit praying for that, that circumstance, that situation, that soul. But now Jesus is here. And he wants to help us. You'll find it threaded, this incredible truth, into other biblical stories tucked even into the Gospels. Consider at Capernaum, a nameless citizen of Capernaum, whose distinction, sadly, was having a hand, a right hand, that was withered. It was common, if not curable, but he went on with his life, tilling the soil, Tending the flock. Many people say he was a mason building buildings, caring for his family. It was inconvenient, inconvenient, but he didn't allow it to control him. Neither did it kill him or dampen his faith. Because when Jesus arrived at Capernaum and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he was there in that synagogue on that Sabbath. This man with a withered hand was there. By now, he's unconscious to his condition. It even isn't an issue anymore with him. It's unfortunate, but incurable. He's put it behind him for a long time. He probably hid it in the fold of his robe, buried it, if you please, out of sight, resigned himself to it, resolved to move on. But he saw Jesus there. He knew his reputation. He was aware of his power. He had heard of his miraculous healings elsewhere, but it never occurred to him to ask, can you fix this? He wasn't even mindful of having a need. There was a time, a time when he had been prevailing, a prevailing issue in his life, dominating his thoughts, depressing his spirits, debilitating him physically, and emotionally driving his days. Then, back then, he wanted help. He sought it desperately, but he couldn't find it. Kind of like the man in John 5 at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. So now, now he never noticed. He never even thought to ask. But Jesus, the Jesus that showed up at church, sought him out, found him among the many who were there and called him to come to the middle of the room. And suddenly the old fire of desire was rekindled and he felt maim again. And the prospect of being whole seized his soul. And by the time Jesus thundered to him, stretch forth thy hand. The possibility of failure seemed far away. Suddenly, after all those years of unconsciously favoring it, he thrust it out. Just as Jesus said do. And instantly his hand 
was healed. Can I just stop right now and say there is a power. The right hand emphasizes power. Jesus sits on the right hand of God. The power of God is in Jesus Christ bodily. The right hand represents power. And there's a power that Jesus wants to return to the church in this last hour. Are you going to let me preach now as I close this sermon out? There's a power that he wants to use to heal. There's a power he wants to use to save. There's a power he wants to use to forgive and wash and deliver. Stretch forth your hand. Jesus had found the place where he had buried it out of sight. And he had gone there. And I know that lurking in the graves of memory of not a few folks right here, right now among us, there are those things for which we've long since lost hope. Written it off. Despaired of believing for it. Ceased to even say when we pray. But today, the same Jesus who demanded to be taken to Lazarus' tomb who sought out the supplicant in the synagogue. The same Jesus is here in this sanctuary. For Hebrews 13, 8 says he's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So this whole month, I want you to do me two things. I want you to take him to the place where you have laid your dreams. I want you to take him to the place where you have laid your unmet expectations. I want you to take him to the place where you have asked him for things that weren't delivered at that season. Because God has sent me here today as your pastor to tell you that if you'll take him to the place where you've laid it, he'll roll away the stone, he'll call that back into your life. And I want you to come to the synagogue all month, even with your problems, with your issues that you thought would never be healed, because I'm going to present a Jesus every Sunday in this house that's going to be able to take your issues and give you strength again and give you wholeness again, because we will leave Easter Sunday, April the 1st, knowing that the resurrection and the life is still a part of our church in this house. Come on now, clap your hands. And rejoice. And rejoice. And rejoice. He wants me and you to take him to that place and roll away the stone and expose it. And get it out in the open again and let him do what only he can do because he is God. I conclude with a beautiful story that I have spoken this church about eight or nine years ago. It's a beautiful story. There was a man arrested in England and he was put in a debtor's prison. And he wrote a letter that illustrated his total despair. He was about to give up on life. But at the bottom of the letter, there was a postscript, a P.S. And it was obvious. He had sealed the letter, then reopened it to write the P.S. Then he sealed it up again, then mailed it. And in the postscript he said, I had to reopen this letter to explain something. My debts have been paid. I am out of jail. I'm on my way to Australia to start over again. 
Some of you today, at the first of this four-week March to Easter Sunday, need to reopen some letters that you've written. And write a P.S. to the devil and to this world. And to your doubts and to all skeptics and to your unbelief. And say, I might have buried it, but God's going to resurrect it. I will wait on the Lord. I'll renew my strength. Can I tell you, this is a start over season. Watchman, what of the night? He said, the night cometh, but also the morning. God always gets a new morning out of an old night. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy is coming in the morning. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this house today. It may be 8 o'clock in the new time, but I declare that the resurrection and life is in the house of God today. He's here. He's here. He is here. He is here. He is here. Randy, if you'll help me, would you stand? Would you stand? I'm going to give an altar appeal today to broken dreams and to unmet expectations and to things that you thought were gone and were out of your sight and out of your mind and things that you just learned to live in your life without even though you thought life would be so much better if you had them back in your life. Wouldn't that be neat to have that kind of experience this Easter month? Wouldn't that be neat? I declare that the resurrection is in the house today. And he's alive in this place today. And he says, if you'll just take me where you've laid it, I promise you I can bring it back. I can give you your dreams again. I can give you your hopes again. I can give you your unmet expectations again. That call on your life. That passion that you once had. That unmistakable glory. That beautiful desire that you just kind of come mute now. You kind of come just, well, I'm in church. No, you're not just in church. You're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And His grace and His mercy are in this house today. Oh yeah, I was scripted today. I was scripted because I didn't want to get off script because I wanted to bring it to you fully and wholly and completely how it felt in my spirit when I received it. So I tell you today, if you need some prayer, I want you to come. I want to bless you today. We have time. We have time. We have plenty of time. Come on down right now. Come on down right now. And let's, let, let's, let's, get, let's get some prayer in this morning. Come on down. It's all right. It's fine. It's just a one minute after ten. We have six whole minutes here. Come on. Come on. We've got time. Come on, unmet expectations. Come on, broken dreams. Come on, heart sickness. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. It's not a saved and lost altar call. It's just to say, I, I, need, I need something to be resurrected in my spirit this Easter season. I need something to be lifted this Easter season. I need it in my life. I need it in my life. I need it in my home. I need it in my existence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Patty and I have been talking about these kind of things because I just don't want to go through life mundane and say, well, 
I didn't get that, but it's all right. I didn't get that, but it's all right. Sometimes you've got to stop and say, Hey, Jesus, I need to take you to the place where I buried it. I want to take you where I put it in the ground. And I want you to bring it back to life in my heart again. I want that to happen in my spirit again. I want the glory of the Lord to be a part of me again. (laughs) I'm ready to get out of this debtor's prison. I'm ready to get out of this place that I live on the bottom side and not the top side of life. That's what it's all about. Would you lift your hands? Would you lift your hands, dear Father? I thank you for today. And I thank you for these precious people. God, open up our hearts. Open up our spirits. Open up our minds to receive, receive the glorious word of the Lord today, to receive your promise today, to receive your presence today, to receive your resurrecting power today, to receive it, to receive it, to receive it, to receive it, to receive it it today in Jesus' name.